My guess is that you all are not altogether different from most local churches, gospel-centered, Bible-believing folk who gather on a Sunday morning like this, even as they are back in Oklahoma City at my church. Many of you, if you were honest, would have to acknowledge that you struggle with fear and apprehension that perhaps God has not dealt fully and finally with your sin. You want to believe it. You read texts like this in Micah chapter 7. You nod your head. But deep down inside, there is this unshakable sense of condemnation and guilt and shame. It haunts us. It taunts us. We say to ourselves, I I, I just can't bring myself to believe that God would look on me with love and approval, knowing myself as I do. I've heard people say things like, well, what if I push God into a corner with my repeated failures? Won't he eventually just get so fed up with me that he'll just cast me aside forever? Or no one can possibly be that good, that generous, that forgiving, that patient, not even God. Surely there's a limit to his patience and his love, isn't there? Or perhaps you say things like, I just keep hearing this voice in my head that forgiveness is for everybody else. It's for the person to my left or right or sitting up front or somebody who stands on a platform and preaches God's word. I mean, after all, God's not an idiot. He knows what I think. He knows what I say. He sees what I do. He knows the doubts and the anger and the frustration that I face every day. So you walk around, put a smile on your face, you pretend that all is well. And deep down inside, your soul feels dirty, soiled, stained, and nothing that anybody says can wipe it away. Let me tell you why you think this way and why you live this way and why the joy that God designed for us to experience so oftentimes seems hard to attain. It comes down to one thing. You and I have failed to believe what God himself says that he has done with our sin. You and I have failed to believe what God himself says he has done with our sin. What consumes us is what we do by sinning, and we ignore what God says he has done with our transgressions. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at what the Word of God says, both the Old and New Testament, that God has done with our sin. Now, very important you keep one thing in mind before we jump into this. Everything that I'm about to say applies only to those who, by God's grace, have repented of their sin and put their trust in Christ. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, maybe you're on a journey, maybe you're still asking the question, is Christianity true and worthy of my trust? I I want you to know that what I am setting before you today is something that can be yours. This is the hope that comes to all mankind, but the promises that we're going to look at this morning are directed specifically to the children of God. He wants you to know what He has done with your sin, and you who do not know Christ, I want you to know what He can do with your sin. So, it's obvious you know how many points I've got in my message because it's in the title. A dozen things that God has done with your sin— 
The first thing is by far and away the single most important thing. He has laid your sin on his son. Remember the words of Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The first, the most important thing that God the Father has done with your sins to lay it upon God the Son. Everything else that we're going to talk about this morning flows out of that truth. None of the rest of what I say would make any sense whatsoever if it weren't due to the fact that in His grace and His love, Jesus voluntarily yielded Himself up on the cross to be your substitute so that the Father would lay on you the judgment and the punishment that your sin and my sin deserved. God reckoned him to be guilty of your transgressions and treated him accordingly on the cross. Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is, this is a reckoning. Uh, theologians call it imputation. God considers and reckons Jesus to bear the guilt that you and I have incurred. So, so how is it then that, that I don't endure the judgment and the punishment that my sin deserves? It's because God made him, Jesus, to be sin on your behalf. Folks, don't ever think that the love of God means that the wrath of God was ignored. It wasn't. God is just, he is righteous, and therefore sin must be punished. There has to be a reckoning. There has to be an accounting. But the good news of the gospel is it has been reckoned unto Jesus. He has been accounted as guilty and thus as deserving the punishment that you and I should have suffered. That's what Paul means when he said Jesus was made to be sin. He's talking about the liability to suffer the consequences of our transgressions. Our guilt because of our trespasses has been imputed to him so that we, through faith in his sufferings, might have his righteousness imputed to us. That's the first, that's the single most important thing you need to remember. God has laid on Christ the Son, who willingly embraced that. He wasn't coerced, he wasn't compelled, he joyfully yielded himself up to have the sins of men and women like you and me laid upon him. The second thing that God has done with your sin, he's forgiven it. Now, we all talk about that. We read that everywhere in Scripture. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Again, in Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, what does it mean? We, we throw that word forgive around a lot in Christian circles, but do we really understand what it means? simply means that there no longer exists any moral or legal grounds on the basis of which might God might condemn you. It's gone. He will never hold our sin against us in order to justify rejecting us. The punishment that sin requires is no longer a threat because it has been laid upon Christ and exhausted there. To forgive our sins means that God says, I'll never bring it up again. I'll never throw it in your face. I'll never use it to manipulate you or to condemn you or to make you feel dirty and unworthy. That's a stunning thought. To be forgiven of our sin means 
that our sins simply no longer register on God's radar. He doesn't see them. They no longer factor into the relationship we have with Him. Now, I know that that's hard for some of us to embrace. I mean, we, we look at our lives and we think that God's looking at us and saying, you know, that woman or that man, man, they have really messed up badly. Their, their sins are so many, it just kind of clouds my mind. And I, I don't think I'm going to listen to their prayers any longer. I don't think I'm going to bless them with my presence. No. If forgiven, our sins simply no longer exist in the mind of God to shape or determine His relationship to us. A synonym for forgive is to pardon. Isaiah 55, 7. God has abundantly pardoned our transgressions. He's declared that we are now and forevermore free from the condemning powers, and you don't have to fear punishment. God has forgiven. He has pardoned our sins. What's the first thing he did? He laid our sin on his son. Secondly, he's forgiven our sin. The third thing he has done, he has cleansed our sin. All through scripture, and this really resonates with our experience, sin is portrayed as dark and ugly and dirty. It soils and spoils everything. It's like a deep, dark, seemingly indelible stain on our souls. And things that you committed in the past that you thought you had left behind kind of come back into your conscious thought. And you wonder, will I ever be free of this? It it discolors, it distorts everything. Remember Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, come let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. They've been cleansed. When David finally confessed his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and his complicity in the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. He cried out to God in Psalm 51, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So I wonder, as you just this morning think about the state of your own soul, do you Do you feel dirty? Do you feel defiled? Is your conscience just racked with guilt? Does your heart ache? God has cleansed your sin. So there it is. He's laid our sin upon his son. He's forgiven our sin. He's cleansed our sin. The fourth thing that he's done is he's covered our sin. Listen to Psalm 85 verse 2. We read about how God not only forgave the sins of his people, but how he covered all their sins. Now, what do you do when you cover something? Why? Well, there's several possibilities. You may cover it to keep it warm, or you may cover it to protect it. But in the case of our sins, God covers it to hide them from view so that he will not see them. Your sin no longer exists out there for God to take note of. They are no longer accessible. They're no longer available for anyone to use them to condemn or judge us. Why? Because God has covered them. Now, I'm going to be repeating myself over and over again. Number one, he's laid our sin upon his son. Number two, he has forgiven our sin. He's cleansed our sin. Number four, he's covered our sin. Number five, I love this one. He's cast your sin behind his back. Listen to Isaiah 38, 17. Hezekiah, the king of Judah, is being quoted here. 
Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. Listen, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. The imagery is vivid. Obviously, it's an anthropomorphism. God doesn't have a literal back. Of course, Jesus did, but God the Father being spirit. But his point is, when you put something behind you, you can't see it. I mean, you can strain your neck and try to look, but you can't see it. God's saying, I'm never going to be influenced by it again. I'm never going to take it into consideration. David in Psalm 51 says, when I sinned and before I confessed and repented, it was always before me, but now God in mercy has put it behind his back. Number six, this is my favorite. He has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Remember that glorious statement in Psalm 103? One of the most incredible declarations, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. If you could get in some sort of a, 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 a rocket ship, a plane, a, a jet, anything, a satellite, and, and go east and just never stop, and somebody else went west and never stopped. Try to fathom the unimaginable distance between them, and that is, as, that is how far God has removed your transgressions from you. Let me, let me give you a little perspective on this. Um, I love following the discoveries of the Hubble telescope. The Hubble telescope has sent pictures back of galaxies that are estimated to be 13 billion light years from Earth. Now, that's just a number until you start unpacking it. 13 billion light years. In other words, a light year is how far a beam of light will travel in a year. Remember, a beam of light travels at 186,282 miles per hour. Not even my daughters drive that fast. They're close, but not quite. Think about it. Every second, a beam of light goes 186,282 miles. Now try to conceive of how far that beam of light would go in a year. If you didn't know what it is, it's six trillion miles. One light year, six trillion miles. That's six with three, six, nine, 12 zeros behind it. That means that this galaxy that we just have a faint image of is 78 sextillion miles from Earth. Now, I probably lost you there. Million, billion, trillion quadrillion, quintillion, sextillion. That's 78 with 21 zeros behind it. That's how many miles away this galaxy is. Now, let me just blow your mind a little farther. Let's just assume that you're in a jet airplane that, I know they go faster, but this goes round figure, 500 miles an hour. And you get on this plane and you travel at 500 miles an hour 60 seconds of every minute, 60 minutes in every hour, 24 hours in every day, seven days a week, 52 weeks in a year, never stopping, never pulling off to use the bathroom or go to McDonald's, just nonstop traveling through space. It would take you 20 quadrillion years to get to that galaxy. My point is simply this. The magnitude of such distance is a pathetically small comparison to the distance between which God has made between your sin and you. 
as far as the east is from the west. Unimaginably distant. Inconceivably distant. That's how far God has removed your transgressions from you. It's stunning. So what has God done? He's laid our sins upon his son. He has forgiven them, cleansed them, covered them, cast them behind his back, and removed them as far as the east is from the west. Number seven, he has passed over your sins. Now this brings us back to Micah. In Micah, this text we've read, the seventh, eighth, and ninth things that God has done with our sins are all mentioned in this one paragraph. First one is, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? To pass over is to pay no heed. It's like there's nothing there. I've passed over it. I've passed beyond it. Doesn't mean God ignores or pretends that our sin never existed. Far from it. He laid it upon Christ. He didn't pass over Jesus. That's the good news. He laid the judgment that we deserved upon him and thereby passed over us. The eighth thing he's done, notice in Micah, he has trampled your sin underfoot. Listen how he says it. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. I love that. What do you do when you think of the image of something on the ground that somebody just stomps it into the dust? You think of victory. You have authority over it. Its power over you has been destroyed. God has conquered the the threat that sin poses. Envision in your mind, just for a moment, all of your sin on the ground, and God looks at it, and he grinds it into the dust, into oblivion. That's what God has done with your sin. The ninth thing that he has done, he cast it into the sea. You see that at the end of Micah chapter 7, verse 19. He has cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. There would seem to be no mistake that Micah here is alluding to the Exodus. He's talking about that moment when the children of Israel were brought through the parted waters of the Red Sea. And just as Pharaoh's armies followed them, the sea then came back on them and drowned them all. Remember Exodus 15, verses 4 and 5? Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. And Micah is appealing to that vivid imagery that all the people of Israel would have known about to portray what God does in defeating and subduing and forever setting us free from the condemning power of our sin. I don't know how, I don't know how much more graphic the Word of God can be. He has put all our sins behind his back. He has covered them. He's cleansed them. He's forgiven them. He's stomped them into the dust. I remember, I don't know how many years it's been, I'm sure you all recall, when they finally discovered the remains of the Titanic. And we all, if you saw the movie, you remember that incredible scene where that submarine with a camera was navigating through the remains and And so many of the artifacts were being retrieved, and it was just a stunning sight. And I wondered at times as I saw that, could that happen with my sin? God cast it into the depths of the sea, but maybe there's a divine submarine that's going to go down and, you know, bring it to the surface again, and we're going to have to live through it all over again. The answer is no, that will never happen with your sin. There ain't no such submarine, folks. (laughs) 
It, that's not what God does with it. It will never be found. It has been submerged and will never be retrieved. God has laid your sin upon his son. He has forgiven it, cleansed it, covered it, cast it behind his back, removed it as far as the east is from the west, passed over it, trampled it underfoot, and cast it into the sea. Number 10, he's blotted it out. Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 44, 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Psalm 51, 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Uh, I'm dating myself by this illustration. I, 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 somebody told me recently that they still have Etch-a-Sketches today. I mean, with all the video games and the iPads, I don't think kids ever bothered with them. But when I was growing up, we played with an Etch-a-Sketch. You remember what it was? It was a little kind of TV screen, and you had two little knobs. And you could turn them, and you could draw whatever you wanted. And if it was real ugly and you didn't like it, all you had to do was you just flipped, you know, just turned it, and suddenly it was erased. Think of your sin throughout the course of your life as an ugly picture that has been sketched upon your soul. You know what God does? He just touches it and it all disappears. And the guilt and the condemning power of that transgression is forever wiped clean. The 11th thing that God does with your sin, he turns his face away from it. He turns his face away from it. Psalm 51.9, David prayed, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. In other words, saying, don't look any longer on them. Don't let your eyes gaze on my wickedness. Think of the opposite. If God were to look upon it, if he were to take it into consideration, when he doesn't turn his face away, he looks intently and angrily at the sin of people. As we read in Jeremiah 16, verse 17, my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Those were the people who had not repented and trusted in the sacrifice that had been provided. But for those who trust in Christ, God turns his face away and never looks upon your sin. And twelfth and finally, he has forgotten your sin. He quite simply refuses to remember it. Listen to Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Hebrews 8, verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Now, I know some of you right now are saying, wait a minute. God is omniscient, is he not? He knows all things. That's true. In a, in a purely technical sense, God always knows the sins we have committed, but the point of this imagery is he chooses not to remember them. It's his way of saying, I, I, I just determined to put your sin out of my mind. doesn't mean that I'm ignorant of them. I'm omniscient. But I choose not to remember them for the purpose of holding you accountable. Do you realize how different God is from us? We work hard at remembering everybody else's sins against us. 
We, we make little sticky notes with their sins and place them on our minds or maybe even on the refrigerator door. Remember how they mistreated you. They betrayed a confidence. They undermined you. They slandered you. And we nurture that in our hearts. God will never do this. We say to others, I'll never forget what you did to me. God says, I'll never remember what you did to me. Those are the 12 things God has done with your sin. Now, a very important qualification here. I might, might have been better if I'd done it up front, but I didn't want to, so let me just make it now. There is a difference between your eternal union with Christ and your experiential communion. And I want those words to stand in contrast, eternal with experiential, union with communion. When I talk about our eternal union, I'm talking about our, our, our state, our, our, our status with God, our, our acceptance with him, the, the fact that we are forever justified and that will never change. When we say that God has done these things with our sin, it means that he has acted in such a way that our eternal union will never be threatened. He's committed to preserving us holy in his sight through faith in Jesus Christ. But our experiential communion is a different matter. The fact of the matter is when we do sin, and especially when we don't repent, when we kind of hold it within, it can disrupt our experiential communion with Christ. We, we can lose that sense of intimacy, that sense of sweet fellowship with him. So in saying that sin never registers on God's radar, I'm talking about its impact on our eternal union with him. But when it comes to our experiential day in, day out communion, our sin can be disruptive. It can be painful. And we need to be quick to acknowledge and repent it. Now, before we close, you thought I was only going to give you 12 points? I've got three more. Not only are there 12 things God has done with your sin, there are three things he doesn't and never will do with your sin. I'll do these quickly. He doesn't and never will use it to determine how he will deal with you. Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Secondly, he doesn't and never will appeal to our sin in order to repay us for it. Again, Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And thirdly, he doesn't and never will count or impute our sins against us. Psalm 32, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, just think of all those together, those three. Consider how we deal with others. We keep fresh in our minds all the things they have done to us. We nourish them, we nurture them, we, we go to bed thinking about them, we wake up reminding ourselves of it, but we never let people forget it. We throw it in their face, we use it, hold it over their heads, manipulate them, and we make them pay for their transgressions in a variety of ways. God says, I'll never do that. Of all the things I have done with your sin, I'll never do that with your sin. Our sins do not constitute the rule or the standard or the plumb line according to which God makes his decisions on how to treat us. I love that. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. Does that mean that 
that, that God just kind of pulled out his wand of mercy and waved it over us and sprinkled some sort of divine pixie dust and made all of our iniquities go away? No. When it says he will not repay us according to our iniquities and deal with us according to our transgressions, <clears throat> does that mean when God considered our sins, he just went, ah, no big deal. Shrug of the shoulders, wave of the hand, let bygones be bygones. No, an infinitely holy and just God cannot do that. Why does God not deal with us according to our sins? Why does he not repay us according to our iniquities? Why does he not count or reckon our sins to us? Because he did so with Jesus in your place. He's dealt with Jesus in accordance with our iniquities. That's why he doesn't deal with us according to, him, according to them. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities because he repaid Jesus as our substitute in our stead. That's the glorious good news of the gospel, people. That's why you don't have to live with a constant gnawing anxiety and concern that your continual failures are going to alienate you from God. Listen to what God himself says he has done with your transgressions. He laid them on his son in your place. He forgave them. He cleansed them. He covered them. He cast them behind his back. He removed them as far as the east is from the west. He passed over them, trampled them underfoot, hurled them into the sea, blotted them out, turned his face away, and has determined not to remember them. I'm glad that I'm here on the morning that I notice you all are celebrating the Lord's table. I don't know what else you do when you partake of those elements, but I'm, I want to appeal to you this morning that as you take those elements into your hands and then ingest them, that the Spirit of God would quicken in your mind the realization that the reason why all these things that God has said today, that's not just Sam Storms, it's God and His Word is saying He has done with your sin. The reason is because of the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus have been poured out for you and God has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. May our hearts be stirred and awakened and empowered with that knowledge. Let's pray.